we're going to see each other in a week. I know. Isn't that crazy? It's nuts. Like, physically see each other. Mm, that never happens. That is the power of Kylie Minogue. It really is. It brings us all together. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Rachel Stewart. And I'm Larry Womack. Well, hey, Larry. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. What Kick-Ass Queer are we going to hear about today? This episode's a little different. We know that a lot of you out there, because we look at the numbers, will listen to the most recent episode, but have not listened to the previous episodes because, I don't know, you think they're in black and white or something? <laughs> To be fair, though, the audio is in black and white on those first few episodes. Our audio quality has come a long way. It really has. It really has. So what we thought we would do is a 2023 year-end review. Revisit all of our previous episodes so that you get kind of an overview of what's been happening so far. I think, Rachel, you just described this as our first flashback episode. Yes, for those connoisseurs of 80s sitcoms, we'll remember the the fluff episodes back when, you know, seasons were like 25 episodes long. The first episode we ever recorded, and we've mentioned it a little bit here and there, we did not release. And we didn't release it for a couple reasons. First, we think it was cursed. <laughs> it was built on a burial ground. <laughs> It was, it was not our most auspicious beginning, I'm not going to lie. It was definitely a, a cursed episode from from the start, honestly. Which is unfortunate because the subject matter was so good. It was fantastic subject matter. The other thing, though, is that all of the information about that subject comes from a single source. And it's a source that's still working on a biography that isn't out yet. So we kind of thought, you know, we shouldn't have done this episode without just inviting that researcher on. So we do still plan to do it, but we want to do it with uh, a really informed guest. Yeah, we do want this to be accurate and to be informative. And we really did not want our first episode out of the gate to be something that turned out to be wildly inaccurate. So uh, it sits on the shelf. It is not dead. It is merely dormant for right now. So it turns out that our first episode was actually the second that we recorded, and that was uh, Larry's sprawling epic on Brian Stonehouse. So Larry, give me your thoughts about that episode. Okay, for those who have not listened to the episode, Brian Stonehouse was a British guy who was raised in France and had a background in fashion. So during World War II, he was recruited to be a special agent in France who posed as an artist for Vogue. He was captured by the Nazis. He was tortured, sent to five concentration camps, but he, spoiler alert, lived. He went on to be first a very famous fashion artist at Vogue, ironic since that's what he was posing as to begin with then a very famous portrait artist and kind of bffs with the queen grandmother now charles's grandmother basically they were besties <clears throat> yeah so it was a really interesting story i, I think i chose it for a, a few reasons one an inspiring figure that not many people knew about mm -hmm. and two because i really wanted to highlight 
that queer people have been at the forefront of fighting fascism forever. Brian Stonehouse, funniest moment, saddest moment, favorite moment. Uh, Okay, funniest moment honestly would have to be how much detail the British chose to pay attention to when it didn't actually seem to matter and the things that they should have been paying attention to, they didn't like the electrical current to the radio box. With the Fry's radio box. Yeah, because uh, they just that's... didn't think about the difference in plugs. So stupid. Mm. They dropped him into Vichy, mm. France, and his equipment's messed up. His shoes are wrong. He doesn't have any food. He gets dysentery. There's scorned lovers. He gets caught. And then five concentration camps. Saddest moment, obviously, was going to be the concentration camps, including the... Uh, what do they call it in the mm. you know we don't, we, no we don't we don't need yeah. to we don't need to all right there's all right. That's some saddest okay. movement it's an emotional roller coaster and i heard that from a couple of people mm-hmm. it's an adventure and then a black comedy and then horrible tragedy and then kind of like a fun sex in the city sort of thing yeah i mean honestly it's like Indiana Jones meets Mr. Bean meets Schindler's List meets You've Got Mail. Yeah, all of that. Mm-hmm. Favorite moment? I would say my, my favorite moment was the audio of Brian Stonehouse talking about him and his friend laughing about the pomp and circumstance for one person. Mm-hmm. You had to laugh or you're going to cry. Yeah. I forgot about that. We had Brian Stonehouse as a guest from Beyond the Grave <laughs> via archival clips. Yeah. The lengths that Larry will go to for veracity. <laughs> I think what I took away from it was, I mean, first of all, obviously how horrible World War II actually was. And also realizing that one of the ways that he was able to survive was that he wasn't captured because he was gay. He was captured because he was a British officer. Whereas if he had been captured because he was gay, he probably would have died there. After we recorded the episode, and I really wish I could have included this when we initially did it, Mm -hmm. I discovered a paper by Juliet Pattinson at the University of Kent about multiple members of the French Resistance. Mm -hmm. But she opens with an anecdote about Stonehouse being gay, pretending to be in a relationship with this woman to avoid detection while also pretending to be French, pretending to not right. be a spy. Right. <laughs> she writes a lot about the various identities and how they mm-hmm. interact and the various false identities. And I thought that was really interesting. Unfortunately, I discovered that after we recorded the episode. One of the things that has been really interesting as well for all of these episodes is that we wind up finding out something else that's incredibly cool about that person but you can't sort of, you know, retcon the episode, especially for me who centers a lot of their academic work on identity. What an amazing conversation to have about the layers of disguise that Stonehouse was operating under to survive. And then after that, we continued the theme of Nazi resistance with when Frida Kahlo met Josephine Baker. You know, I I love that episode. It feels very much like a fluff piece because it doesn't necessarily have a lot of substance. And that's one of those episodes that I do wish that I'd had a little bit better of a handle on as far as what was going to work. 
I think one of the most glaring things that you can kind of see in the early episodes is Larry and I still trying to find our groove. And I would say the number one thing I got as feedback for the Josephine and Frida episode was more. People wanted more. If I had to do it again, I would say that I would probably do a full episode introducing each of them separately and then done the episode where they come together to come together. That's something we even <laughs> talked about. <laughs> that, so that's something we even talked about in the episode, though, right? We, we talked yeah. about how we were kind of doing a reverse Avengers. We, yeah, we did yeah. talk about that. Yeah. So funniest favorite and saddest parts for Frida and Josephine. Funniest moments for me were actually the crazy puns and wordplay that you would throw in. <laughs> like the Scissor Sister Summer and things like that. <laughs> Rachel, rein it in. My goodness. <laughs> they came together. saying? They came together, whether or not they came together. Saddest, I guess, would be the war. <laughs> Same... Same, same, same saddest war. moment as Brian Stonehouse, actually. <laughs> World War II. <laughs> Favorite moment, our first foray into wild speculation. Mm, yes. Because that became a recurring theme. Yeah, our now patented wild speculation originated from Frida and Josephine mm. episode. Absolutely. On Stormy DeLavier, a, a few things. One, it is one of the episodes that I get the most enthusiastic responses to people tell me they want to see a movie about stormy mm-hmm. after after hearing it yeah absolutely. Um, the two that i get oh this is my favorite i love this and it's often like people saying both are stormy delavier and florence nightingale the flo and i episode was was spicy yeah yeah Pe- people like it when we're dirty uh, yeah people do like it when we're dirty stormy wasn't very dirty for those who don't know who Stormy DeLavier was, Stormy was a blues singer and former circus performer who became America's foremost drag king, who became you know relatively famous for that. Mm-hmm. Then may have incited the Stonewall riots. She's probably the leading candidate, though, as we discuss in the episode, no one knows and, you know. I wouldn't say there's more than a 50% chance it was her, but I would say there was a greater than anyone else chance it was her. Yes. Yes. Um, if we're if we're looking at people who may or may not have caused what became the Stonewall riots, Stormy DeLavier is a much better candidate for it than, say, Sylvia Rivera. <laughs> who we'll get to in a moment. Who we're going to um, get to in a second. So after that, Stormy became sort of the guardian of the West Village, and she would patrol the street with a sheriff's badge almost, and a gun and a and a blade in her leg. And she was at this point not a young woman. This was from like no. the age no, of she's like fifty to 50. eighty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which again, as I'm in my mid forties now. That just really gives me hope for a renaissance. (laughs) Funniest, saddest favorite moment. Okay. um, Saddest moment is that her favorite song is It Ain't Easy Being Green by Kermit the Frog. Oh. So sad. Yeah. So sad. That's such a snapshot of all of these ways that she didn't quite fit in, whether it be by race or gender or sexuality or any of it. My favorite part 
honestly was just how instrumental you were in being able to assemble all of this and actually set the record straight on a lot of stuff mm. i thought that was really very kick-ass i would say chris starfire did way more of the work there than i did mm -hmm. but um most of the biographies you will see about her including i think her wikipedia page rely on a lot of blatantly false information that she told reporters at one time or another while she was mm -hmm. building her own myth right and i think her true story is 10 times more interesting than what she heard yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that she was trying to protect herself, right, by creating this mythology, almost shield herself. You know, I think a lot of what we saw within her story was discrimination and what we would expect of how people who were very obviously queer were treated up until very, very recently. And so we see her trying to protect herself. Also, I think she was selling herself to some degree, too, because... Mm -hmm. Again, if you're trying to book places as like a blues singer or a jazz singer, mm -hmm. you're not going to say you're from the wrong side of Nebraska. And then funniest, mm -hmm. honestly, you know, I just can't get over that in her 50s, she just decided to become like an avenging angel of New York City. <laughs> just a street vigilante. She literally became a street vigilante. Mm -hmm. And I'm just imagining this middle-aged bull dyke with a slapjack on her hip, beating the shit out of homophobes. I love it. I just love that. Also, about a week or two weeks after this episode went live, the premiere of Fellow Travelers aired, and Stormy DeLavier, well, an actress playing her, mm -hmm. has a bit of a cameo in it. She's singing through one of the key scenes in the episode. That's great. I mean, and, and that, again, I think that what's at least been helpful for me is seeing those places where, you know, when Stormy Delavier crops up or I see something about Sylvia Rivera or read something about the resistance in World War II, I am able to sort of make this larger network of connections with our queer history, which I think is important because there is this active desire to silence queer narrative it's been really nice for me to start to piece together sort of this larger quilt. This is something I've been thinking about myself. Being immersed in these stories has been really interesting to me because it's presenting history a bit more as it was than as we assume it was based on where things started in our lives. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Speaking of self-mythologizing mm -hmm. another thing i get a lot of comments about mm -hmm. is a particular exchange in the sylvia rivera episode mm. can can you guess which one that was rachel was it the negotiation of what role she had in stonewall was it that it, one it was that's one of the things people quote back to me sylvia oh. you didn't throw a bottle <laughs> Or... Can you say that I at least threw a brick? No. <laughs> How about a shot glass? Like, yeah, the negotiation. I love, love the negotiation. So for those who haven't heard the episode yet or don't know, Sylvia Rivera was not at Stonewall at the time the riot started, but she did repeatedly try to take credit for starting the riot. But that's only one small part of a really, really interesting story which 
Rachel, you want to tell us more about it? Sylvia Rivera, for her entire life, kept trying to insert herself into the Stonewall riot. And then almost as this footnote, it's like, oh, and by the way, she was one of the co-founders of the first transgender youth shelter in North America. And you're like, shit, that shouldn't be a footnote. No, that should be her legacy. And when people talk about her, I kind of picture when Z-Way asked George Santos about (laughs) Marsha P. Johnson. (laughs) And he clearly didn't know what she did. Had no idea. Yeah, had no idea she she was. was the other founder of the Who was the other founder of the of the Star House, exactly. Right. And he was just like, oh, you know, the the stances and the action. (laughs) (sighs) So bad gay. He's a bad gay. He is not getting an episode. I'm going to tell you that much. All right, Larry. Funniest, saddest, most interesting part of Sylvia Rivera. So funniest, of course, is the negotiation (laughs) with her friend. (laughs) About what lie he will tell about her involvement in Stonewall. Oh, my God. And again, that is the most quoted thing. to. Well, that um, Florence Nightingale is horny and just two guys fucking are the three (laughs) quotes that I hear from listeners. Oh, God, that's funny. Oh, yeah. So definitely that. Okay. For funniest moment. Saddest moment was hearing that she was on the streets working as a sex worker when she was 10 years old. That's unfathomably tragic. Right. Most interesting for me is definitely the founding of the Star House and the amount of activism she was able to do while battling homelessness and drug addiction herself. So um, what were some major themes that you saw emerge from this first batch of episodes? So going up to Sylvia Rivera, resistance. Okay. And that's going, that's going to continue definitely into the next episode. She was a tireless activist. And loud. She may not have been a catalyst for Stonewall, but Stonewall was a catalyst for her. And that's important. We need to have people activate like that so speaking of activating resistance (laughs) um, another comment i got today is that the title of the next episode sounded amazing and someone was super excited to listen to it and that is how gay drama started democracy (laughs) that's right our gay lovers who incidentally caused democracy to break out And it's interesting because it just got that title like two days ago because I felt like it was one of our crazier stories and it wasn't (laughs) getting that many listens because people saw the tyrant killers. Tyrant killers. Yeah. Right. But that is the story of how either a tyrant or the tyrant's brother was making the moves on a taken man. That's right. And getting rejected not taking no for an answer right and after some especially delicious drama involving a public parade <laughs> and the little sister <laughs> the, people who, the people who haven't heard that episode are like what 
<laughs> they have no idea. But it's fun. There's a lot of humor in episode five. I gotta say. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. It has everything. It's got humor. It's got murder. It's got pederasty. <laughs> what, what else? What else? Also, it points out that gay people fucking gave you democracy. So maybe stop thinking of it as something that you should use democracy to punish. Right. Yeah, that's a fair point, right? Gay people gave you democracy and we'll take it back. Yeah. In fact, if Roy Cohn was still alive today, we would no longer be in a democracy. Trump would be dictator. Right. Absolutely. Don't make us turn this car around is essentially what we're saying. (laughs) We won't turn around for Trump, though. The Tyrant Killers. Funniest, saddest, most interesting. I think the funniest was just trying to pronounce everybody's name. Pisistratus. <laughs> oh, yeah. Old Pissy. You kept making me repeat them because you enjoyed it. Well, I mean, Pisistratus. Also, I think he did a great job with the storytelling, taking something that could have been very prosaic and turning it into drama. Such drama really getting the real housewives of Athens. <laughs> and then the saddest is obviously the death and destruction and really what set off this whole thing. I mean, you've got the sister being, you know, her her name being besmirched. You've See, got... I actually thought that might have been the funniest. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> Your sister's like, a sucks giant for her bag. <laughs> but it's funny. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then I would say all of it was interesting, especially, like you said, caused democracy to break out. And then they were so celebrated that they had not one, but two statues made for them. So seeing the celebration of these two guys that were very obviously not roommates was really great uh, and, and it also gives you this timeline you know so often we get this like idea that like homosexuality is a modern affliction and you're like bitch it's been around forever yeah and the athenians never tried to portray them as anything other than lovers they never tried to sort of rewrite the history of it like no this happened because this dude was hitting on this other dude's boyfriend mm-hmm. so we jumped forward a few several, thousand years. Several thousand years. <laughs> For our next episode, Florence Nightingale, who was, of course, the first modern nurse. And then I only learned, I think, through that episode, a, a very important mathematician as well. Yeah, yeah. She was able to use her statistics to convince powers that be why things like hygiene and sanitation were important. And as we talk about in that episode, create what is now known as the modern day histogram. She also, incidentally, fucked more women than the starting lineup of the 95 Bulls. (laughs) Wilt Chamberlain's like, can you give me a little bit of advice? Oh my god. I I think that the biggest thing that came out of that is I had a lot of people, which was nice because it showed people were listening, but I had a lot of people just come up to me and say, Florence Nightingale was horny. (laughs) So, so (laughs) you know, okay. After we recorded that episode, after we released it, I was a little embarrassed by how much I fixated on that. (laughs) But. 
people really seem to have loved that episode so um yeah i would say that was probably one of our most unhinged episodes <laughs> you y'all definitely did not get to hear the entire conversation about glory holes that that stemmed from it however i think one of the reasons why you're so shocked by it was because there is such a picture painted of her being so pure and chaste though a nurse in white who doesn't know even what sex is and then you get these letters where you're like oh she knows she knows <laughs> she knows why you need to wash your hands <laughs> she had to wash her hands all the time all the time she had to wash her wrists a lot too <laughs> oh we love you Flo I, thank I think you my, for telling us to wash our hands I think my favorite part is, is we had the entire episode recorded and then I found out that she was like obsessed with cats and she had an entire harem of lesbians living next door to her and had to be like we, we need to cut that in <laughs> I love it I love it so much alright Florence Nightingale, saddest, most interesting. Go. <laughs> so funniest, I think we all know, is all of Europe. <laughs> My knowledge of women is, is, is as that of all of Europe. big as Europe. <laughs> oh, horny, horny flow. I love you so much. <laughs> so that was definitely the funniest. It felt a little black comedy at the time we were talking about it. But the saddest to me was discovering how many people were dying unnecessarily in hospitals because they weren't washing the equipment or their hands or anything yeah. like that. It's just, it's just horrible. Yeah, in this weird way, and because, I mean, it, it isn't, but there was this feeling of burying the lead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And most interesting for me was finding out <clears throat> that she was such an accomplished mathematician as well. Yeah, that's definitely not something that comes up very often and, it, you know, very much the mother of sanitation and modern nursing, but not also really, really good with numbers and women. Numbers of women, for Number sure. <laughs> All of Europe. I wish she could have been a guest. I wish we could have oh, just asked her. Gosh, just point blank. I just have a feeling that if it were modern times and she were around, I think she would have been pretty well known for her hoeing. Oh, she would have been canceled like tar. <laughs> not expecting a Lydia Tar reference today. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, she's my next episode. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> she's a guest. <laughs> she's going to be on in five minutes, Rach. So yeah, so Florence, Florence was a lot of fun to put together and to research and to go through her letters and to see this personal side of her. And one of the things that I really got from Florence Nightingale, too, is how much of our history as queer people is hiding in plain sight. Um, it's just not necessarily making it onto the Wikipedia page. Mm, so speaking of digging, Lawrence v. Texas, we oh. did a lot of, oh, I mean, we'd done some original research greatly aided in the Stormy Delavier episode. A little bit in Florence Nightingale. Then Lawrence v. Texas, for some reason, I lost my entire mind. 
And (laughs) the whole thing snowballed from just let's highlight maybe the clerk who noticed it. And then we were like, oh, his his story actually isn't that compelling. And then we were like, well, let's talk about the activist who actually did something with it. Well, that's really good. But that doesn't take us to the end of the case. And then we were just like, you know what? We're just going to do the whole case as a miniseries. So it's a four part odyssey with a couple original interviews. We have the gentleman who argued the case before the Supreme Court. We have the activist who really spearheaded the entire thing. And it's quite a ride, right? We got to we we were able to relive our queer teenage trauma while laughing through it. That was fun. Mm. Then part two was three messy gays meet four awful cops. So we got to know the personalities involved in the arrest. Who was your favorite? Obviously, Officer Quinn. He was so inspirational. (laughs) I wonder if he's got his dick to work yet. I mean, probably with Viagra. He may have calmed down. You know, I just don't think that him having a four-hour hard-on is going to help anything. Wait, wait, wait. What do you think Viagra does, Rachel? I mean, give you a boner? Just, like, instantly for four hours? I mean, sure. I don't know how Viagra works. Okay, I'm just testing your knowledge of dicks. I knew it was supposed to be like a blood pressure medication, but it turned out that it had this really unfortunate side effect of giving you a giant hard-on, and they're like, that's even better. Let's do that. It's not going to give you an erection if you're not aroused. It'll just make it so that you can get an erection when you're aroused. I don't, this feels real like chicken or egg for me. Now, speaking of favorite characters, part Ah. three was named the parrot, the beaver, and the law. The law. And those are all three last names of colorful characters Angie involved in the case. Angie An- Beavers. Angie B. We don't like Angie Beavers, or we might. We need more information. She about is what she's a she's a doing. she is a conflicted lesbian with the last name Beavers. So let's just give her a mm-hmm. break. Although she does, you know, violate a lot of human rights. So anyway. Yeah. So we don't we don't <clears throat> love her. Judge no. Parrot seems cool, and then Janice Law. The law. Uh, Batshit, right? So, so crazy. Batshit. Did so you go to her crazy. website after I, I after did? I... I did. I was really <laughs> expecting some dancing hamster gifts. Do you want to take them one at a time or do you just want to do them all no, as, let's just uh, do it. as one? Let's just do them all as one. I mean, Larry had the intention of it being one episode, so. I actually did. That was so naive of me. This <laughs> five hour epic. <laughs> I was like, yeah, we can knock this off in 40 minutes. Oh, gosh. The funniest part of Lawrence v. Texas was two guys fucking. (laughs) The funniest part was just two guys fucking. There was a lot that was in there that I, I found funny, obviously. Our discussion of the cast of characters was a lot of fun. Obviously talking about Angie Beavers, Judge Law. And so whether you have Officer Quinn or you have the fucking each other from behind or (laughs) he did not know how sex works. No. And it was nice to be able to laugh when talking about stuff that was really serious. 
I think the saddest thing for me was just the sheer amount of resources that it takes for minority populations to get even just a crumb of equality and just seeing how many people and how much time and how much sacrifice it took while also juxtaposing it to just how really awful being gay in the 90s was. That was really hard to look at and to to process and to have to kind of de-stress from and decompress from after each recording session. What did I learn from it? My biggest takeaway, none of these are set in stone. As minorities, we don't get the luxury of complacency. And there are people who actively want to take the rights given in specifically Lawrence v. Texas away. Especially Clarence Thomas. So yeah, Lawrence v. Texas, you know, I'm really proud of the work that you did on that and the episodes that were produced for it. It's another one of those places, right, where we were figuring out our rhythm and I'm really, really proud of that production. I think maybe even just a couple times a year having sort of these, what do they call them now? Limited series. It's where we sort of do a deep dive into something relevant from our history, I think is important, but it, it definitely felt like we had gone from highlighting a wide range of kick-ass queers to this is a podcast about Lawrence v. Texas. <laughs> For four episodes. It's a long time. And it did allow us, though, to highlight a large number of kick-ass queers. Oh, yeah. Per capita, Uh, we definitely had more kick-ass queers in those four episodes than we did in the rest of them. But I think that this should be confined to smaller groups. (laughs) (laughs) One Um, to three people, maybe. So then we decided to get back to our roots. One subject who's inspiring and interesting, and that was... Nancy Garden. Yes. Again, it, you know, Lawrence v. Texas, very proud of it. The research that Larry did and all of the strings that got pulled together and the narrative arc was was really admirable and, and was a really good piece of work. Also very mentally and emotionally exhausting in a lot of ways. Oh, my God. So, so much. Yeah, and I can only imagine because I, I was definitely riding shotgun instead of driving on that one. So... Um, I know that for for me, it was really sort of emotionally draining to have to relive it and to also juxtapose it against all of the stuff that's going on now and the threat of having things like Roe versus Wade or Lawrence v. Texas be repealed. It's not a surprise I went to something that I've often returned to as a form of comfort. And this probably is something I should talk about with a therapist. But No, no, this is cheaper than therapy. It has. <laughs> It is, actually. Um, Queer young adult literature. And that, for me, is Nancy Garden. Um, There's lots of other ones now that has, you know, positive endings and can be seen as something that can be beneficial and, and helpful to queer youth struggling with their identity. But Nancy Garden was one of the first. And so to be able to share her story um, was very cathartic for me after reliving how awful it was to exist as a queer person for a a large majority of the existence of this country and still not necessarily super comfortable depending on where you live. So Nancy Garden was a very straightforward and in the same way that her book is sweet sweet story yeah and we hadn't had a sweet story before that really had we what would be the second sweetest story we had done florence nightingale i mean i don't know like (laughs) kind of yeah i mean like florence nightingale yeah yeah you know Um, where it's not it's not absolute death and destruction 
No Nazis. No Nazis. No transphobia. No getting no, addicted to no heroin. Addiction. Yeah, yeah, getting no. addicted to heroin because you're a sex worker at the age of ten. None of that. Just you know, your run of the mill homophobia and parents not accepting who you are. But you know, gets the girl in the end. And because I still have a love for and again it goes back to sort of soothing that 17 year old in me who thinks that they're just inherently evil and wrong for being gay i'm still very much drawn to queer young adult fiction as a soothing a coping mechanism and i just read one recently and it dawned on me that this book that i just read by rachel lippincott and allison derrick was the first lesbian book that i had read where the characters weren't made to feel badly either internally or externally about being gay. The, the drama wasn't generated because they were gay. It was other stuff. And it was because they were being hoes. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, they fine. were. They were. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was that they, you know, they were falling for people they shouldn't fall for and not because they were gay, but just because they were with other people. And I think that that was shocking for me to think about it's 2024 and i'm 43 years old and this was the first time i didn't have embedded into the story you're suffering because you're gay and if it hadn't been for nancy garden opening the door to say it's okay for kids to be gay and to figure that out books like this wouldn't have existed either so i am very thankful for nancy garden and being able to share that softness that she's able to bring into my life Favorite moment, saddest moment, and biggest takeaway? Funniest moment for me is also the saddest moment, which is the book burning. Because mm. mm-hmm. it was so like weirdly, tragically backward, but she shrugged it off with pretty good humor, which impressed me. The, the humor uh, of, I thought they only did that in Nazi Germany. So funny. <laughs> right? <laughs> so funny. If only that were true. And most interesting for me is I'd honestly never read that book. And it was the first topic that we had encountered that I didn't know anything about. Mm. Frida and Josephine, I know a lot about them. Sylvia Rivera, I knew a bit about. Nancy Garden, I didn't know anything about. And I'm really happy that there is this lovely little love story out there. And I'm especially happy that her own relationship seems to sort of mirror the relationship in the book a little bit and they're still together or they were still together at the time of her death yeah because she did oh well you just made it the saddest moment (laughs) and the funniest (laughs) look at that it was all the same moment which which translates to Mm. this lovely queer lady existed then we moved on to someone less awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and then Larry took but over. T- Larry took, took over, over the steering wheel. And then. <laughs> and we did our least, like, purely awesome character at the same time, cooler than I would have thought going in. And that was King James the sixth and first of the Bible. Guy's name right on the Bible. Right on the front. Big ol' homo. <laughs> Huge homo. Gigantic homosexual. <laughs> And I was really shocked how open it was, how known it was, and how many of his relationships were so well documented in letters, in testimony, in human hearts being delivered. (laughs) (laughs) That was not a fever dream. Okay, let me let me write that down. That was not a fever dream. Oh, wow. 
Um, so I, I think a big thing for me with King James was I was not anticipating finding him as a sympathetic of a figure as I did wind up finding him. I actually did wind up having warm, positive feelings for him. And I just genuinely did not expect that going into it. Now, obviously the ritualistic killing of witches, not, not a big fan. Yeah, no, that's not good. But yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting too, you know, the whole thing of how open it was, like everybody knew that he was gay like everybody it was also interesting to me that there were definitely people who were writing letters and making public statements around the situation who were assuming that because he was clearly interested in men he also was not interested in women which for the record i think Mm -hmm. was probably true (laughs) but it, it was interesting that this was sort of an identity to people even then even if it wasn't stated as such so king james oh boy funniest saddest takeaway i'm gonna be really honest with you i don't remember a lot of it because so, so sick um but what but i did listen to him so let me think about this black humor but the heart was definitely a thing Oh, that was crazy. His poetry before the heart. Oh, the too, poetry. Was like the poetry was teen, so yeah. angsty teenage poetry. Oh, oh yeah. James. Also, when he testified before the Privy Council that his relationship with the Duke of Buckingham was cool because it was just oh, like that's Jesus, right. and Jesus, John. Jesus and John. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 oh. You know, I I think the biggest thing, maybe this is another reason why I've, I've sort of blocked out a lot of the episode, was even though I am not religious and I don't adhere to Christianity per se, I, I've been indoctrinated enough within American culture to have genuinely worried that I was going to get smitten smited <laughs> smoted i was gonna get smoked Smote. i was gonna get smote smote uh let's get smote i'm gonna get smote by literally just talking about this especially the part about jesus and john oh i think i yeah i i think i might have actually blacked out at that point and i'm not even religious the saddest part besides the creation of a document that has directly suppressed and oppressed me for my entire life was the witch burnings. <laughs> yeah, that's a bummer. That was a big bummer. Not, not, not great. Uh, nope, not a good look for him. Jimmy let us down. J- Jimmy let us down on that one. Uh, and my biggest takeaway, honestly, was just how much weird empathy I wound up having for King James and the situation and realizing that he wasn't necessarily a terrible guy. And so I think this weird separation between King James and the King James Bible actually occurred for me where I realized that he didn't necessarily have that written as a tool to then oppress minorities as much as it was like, hey, we all need to like come to an agreement about what this says. Yeah, you would expect the one human whose name is actually on the Bible to be more of a Bible thumper, right? (laughs) I was so surprised by how like it really felt like Jesus was not the first man in his life, you know? (laughs) Maybe the fifth after the four relationships oh we profiled. Word. And, you know, only James. only one gave him his heart, literally. So 
I honestly thought that one of the sadder moments in that, and not as sad as witch burning, don't get me wrong. Right. But when the nobles kidnapped him and forced him to break up, and then maybe that guy did sort of die of heartbreak. I don't know. They're probably exaggerating it. He probably got cholera or some shit. I don't know. <laughs> but. I mean, you can die of heartbreak, it's a though. Sad so, story. yeah. I mean, it's it can happen. I wonder if that, if that heart is somewhere i bet it is i'm sure unless it's been preserved it's probably not let's start a rumor that it was buried with james my heart will go on (laughs) (laughs) he threw it into the ocean (laughs) and it rehydrated it's pumping still pumping still oh man so what is your as we close out our first season what is your main takeaway if you look at the episodes that we chose to do straight away brian stonehouse frida and josephine sylvia rivera the tyrant killers going right up through lawrence v texas the recurring theme that i see is resistance to oppression yeah absolutely and specifically fascism Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is this really unexpected correlation between homosexual activism and anti-fascism, which somebody is now going to cut me together being like homosexuals or Antifa, which whatever. But there's this unexpected connection between those two for me. Yeah, it's often said queers are at the forefront of this. And I always sort of pictured like Weimar Germany mm-hmm. and the Isherwood books and things mm-hmm. like that. But that's not really what you get out of those. In fact, you get some some gay Nazis out of those. <laughs> <laughs> but looking at history, whenever you see early resistance mm-hmm. to really bad things, in these cases, fascism, you see queers right at the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. And that's pretty kick-ass. So as we look forward to the next year, I know we have... A few episodes still planned for this season, and those are somewhat along this theme. What are you thinking your focus might be next season? That's a good question. I I don't know. If I learned anything from this first season, it was just to expect the unexpected Mm. when we do more than the surface scratch of these people. Being like, you're not going to fucking believe some of these letters from Florence Nightingale. Like, the actual (laughs) shock of discovering the humanity of each of these people. So, I'm looking forward to finding the humanity in each of these kick-ass queers in ways that oftentimes get left out of their narrative, if they're given a narrative at all. So, I love that, because that ties in nicely with what I keep getting drawn to for the next batch, which is transgression, specifically artistic transgression, Mm -hmm. being overtly queer in your art. Yeah. Though in some cases that I'm considering for next season, we're we're not really talking about art. For example, I'm thinking of doing a very famous prostitute. Right. That's transgressive. But you know what? That doesn't make it less of an art. Absolutely. (laughs) So I love that. It's transgression and no expectations. Yeah, I like that. Which, you know what? That's a really good mantra to live your life by. 
until it all catches up with you. Oh, God. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this, please rate, review, and share this with all of your friends. You can find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Deezer, and other platforms, as well as kickassqueers.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and be sure to join us for our next episode when we'll be discussing... Michel Foucault, when I learn how to speak French. I'm going to have to take lessons for that. (laughs) Me too. Me too. And whether you're having the funniest day, saddest day, or most interesting day of your life, the important thing to keep in mind is you're kicking ass. The second time we saw Kylie, I believe it was the second time, at one point, Larry was standing behind me and he stooped down, he he squatted down to be eye level with me and said, oh, this sucks. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I did. I guess we've never really discussed on the podcast that like, I don't even know how tall you are because most people are just short to me. But how, how how tall are you, Rachel? I am five foot and three quarters of an inch. Oh, wow. And I am six, four and three quarters of an inch. So there, so, there is a 16 inch difference, mm, which makes it yeah. look like I am standing in a pothole every time I'm standing next to you. So my other story about that second time we saw Kylie, mm-hmm. which was the Aphrodite tour, uh-huh. we were in Bill Graham in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And I looked over, and I don't know if you saw this. I feel like it's something I would have pointed out. There were two two guys fucking, <laughs> like right there on the floor in general admission, standing up, right? So I don't know, like a week later or something, this guy messages me, and he says, were you wearing an orange shirt at Kylie Minogue? And... I was. <laughs> I was wearing that orange cryptid shirt thing that I had. Mm-hmm. So I said yes. And I was like, were you the dude getting fucked <laughs> over my shoulder? Because it looked like that guy. And he said, yeah. And he was like, I was looking at you. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>